submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 93714, U.S. Bancorp Mortgage Company versus Bonner Mall Partnership. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This is a case which contains within the question presented as set forth in the Court's March 28th order a much more narrowly focused question. And that question is whether the decision below should be vacated when after this course, Court granted certiorari, the parties settled and mooted the case before this Court. And that settlement did not contain any agreement or condition requiring, or for that matter, precluding vacature. <coughs> Excuse me. We also contend for a rule of more general application, and that is that the established precedent confirmed in the Munsingware decision and in later decisions of this Court, which require vacature upon mootness, that those decisions be generally adhered to in cases where mootness arises as a result of settlement. And because that is the established practice of this Court, we believe that the burden should be on the respondent, Bonner, to demonstrate why that practice should be changed. Our position here can be summarized rather succinctly. One, in a case like this one, where the Court has granted review so that the decision below is not final in the federal statutory scheme, and therefore there is no presumption of correctness, we believe, which attaches, vacature is appropriate generally, and in this specific case. Mr. Anderson, when you say vacature, are you referring just to the judgment below, or are you referring to also to the opinion, if, if there was an opinion below? We are referring to what, in essence, is the judgment below. We do not contend, uh, as has been suggested by Bonner, that the opinion should be somehow expunged from published sources, or that it should be depublished or withdrawn. What we are addressing is the, what is, in essence, is the judgment below. And you, you would leave it to some other rule or set of rules to decide whether the opinion should continue to have precedential value in the circuit and that sort of thing? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you. Mr. Anderson, may I ask circuit judge do if uh, there were an opinion and the judgment had been vacated and that opinion is on the book? Is that the law of the circuit in the Ninth Circuit? I don't believe it would be the law of the circuit, uh, Your Honor. The, uh, our position is, and I think it's like an interesting law review article hanging out there. No, I, Your Honor, I think that it would be uh, not comparable to a law review, but perhaps comparable to the decisions that we have found in the Seventh Circuit on this same new value exception issue, uh, where there has been much uh, learned discussion about the issue, most of it, I guess all of it, in dicta, 
and it has provided, I think, a useful examination of the issue, which then ultimately goes to establish the, the basis for what ultimately will become the president. Now, now you've, you've confused me. I thought you just told the Chief Justice you didn't care, that you would leave that, uh, you know, for another day. We would leave you it care. To, yeah, you do. Well, we would leave it to another day, Your Honor. Although we, so your we position is that it has no presidential effect. That's correct. Well, but I thought you answered just, just yeah. the opposite That's to correct. me a moment ago. Uh, that you said you you were the vacature would not cover the opinion, but only the judgment. I, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I must have misinterpreted your question. Uh, it is not necessary to our argument here today that a determination be made as to what the presidential effect, if any, of vacature is. Is, is there any reason why, say, the Ninth Circuit couldn't have, uh, consistent with your position, why the Ninth Circuit couldn't have a rule that said, even though a judgment of our court, which has been vacated pursuant to Munsingware, uh, nonetheless we will continue to regard the, our opinion in that case as a circuit precedent? They could have such a rule, Your Honor. I don't believe that is the case, but they could have such a rule. One frequently sees cases cited at least where they are vacated on other grounds. Uh, you cited for one proposition, you know, per vacated on other grounds, and that, that seems to be considered uh, proper authority so long as the uh, uh, vacature is not, uh, is not for the reason cited. I believe that could be the case, Justice Scalia. I was simply stating that our position generally is that our understanding of the law is that normally a vacated decision would not have precedential or binding effect on the lower courts. Mr. Anderson, may I ask you a preliminary question about Munsingware? Do you think we should read Munsingware as a case in which the mootness was, was the result of happenstance, which was the word used in, in the opinion, or should we read, read that as a case in which the mootness or, or the, the underlying mootness resulted from, from the acts, the unilateral act of one party, and in, in, in hence creating the mootness? We would contend, uh, Your Honor, that the mootness to the extent it was created there, was created by the unilateral act, and that the reference to happenstance by the court in, in Munsingware was not a description of what had happened, but was rather uh, more of an offhand reference to... A misdescription the, of what had happened. Possibly a misdescription of what had happened, yes, Your Honor. Uh, in fact, as you know, Munsingware did not involve directly the question of mootness. The question before the court in that case was whether res judicata effect should have been given to the judgment mm -hmm. which the United States did not challenge directly below. The court indicated also that had the United States moved to vacate in the Court of Appeals, that it would have been entitled to that relief. Do you think it's fair to say that the court uh, in Munsingware did not view it the way you have just described it? What was the point of talking about happenstance and happenstance alone if it viewed it your way? Well, the, the explanation, Your Honor, I think is reflected in the subsequent decisions of this court after Munsingware was decided. There are at least a dozen decisions in which, uh, with Munsingware standing there as president, this court has granted vacature in cases where mootness came well, about yeah, as a result we're, of we're now, we're now, in effect, saying, should we be doing that? Your position is stronger if, if we view it as a, as a case in which the mootness resulted from the unilateral act of a party. You would agree there, I take yes, it? Yes, that is correct. May I just ask you, I'm not sure I, your argument tracks your, your position in your briefs. Is it your position that there should, we should announce a general rule that when there's a settlement there will always be a vac uh, vacation of the judgment below? Or is it to be decided on a case-by-case -case, uh, determination? Ultimately, as we have argued in our briefs, the decision whether to vacate 
is bottomed on discretion by this court. Uh, we believe that that discretion is appropriately exercised as a general matter in cases where um, mootness occurs as a result of the joint action of the parties in agreeing to a settlement, where the prevailing party below uh, agrees I'm to... I'm puzzled as to what you're saying. The discretion should be exercised as a general matter to vacate. But does that mean you would, that we should adopt a rule we always vacate without looking at the particular facts, or we simply... Uh, I don't quite understand. Well, there may be circumstances, Justice Stevens, where uh, you, the court would have to look at the particular facts. I think those circumstances would be unusual and perhaps extraordinary. For example, uh, where you have what in essence might be a, a sham settlement uh, or where the parties can identify a pattern of abusive settlements. But the general rule... Does that make any difference? Because ultimately, vacature is, is premised on the, ec- the, discre- the exercise of discretion by this court. And the, the interest promoted by vacature, which are fairness and the prudential considerations that we have outlined, would not be promoted, I don't think, in a situation where the settlement was, in fact, not a settlement. For example, where the losing party below uh, essentially pays the full amount of the judgment. Uh, in essence, what it's saying there is that it is prepared to live with the judgment, is prepared to comply with the decision below. And in that circumstance, where the the prevailing party below has not made any concessions, has not agreed to forego reliance on that lower court decision. Yeah, but it's willing to pay in the particular case, but it still doesn't like the general rule that the court announced. And that's, that, 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 I don't under, I really don't understand your position, but go ahead. May I ask you all to be, to clarify your position that you, care only about having the judgment expunged. The judgment doesn't do anything. What can hurt is either the preclusive effect or the precedential value. So what does it mean to vacate a judgment if that judgment is still going to have, if the opinion is going to have precedential value? What, what do you accomplish by vacating the bare bottom line if everything else is retained? Well, Your Honor, in this uh, instance, as the Court said in Munsingware, one of the purposes of vacature is to prevent the spawning of any legal consequences. Uh, and that would include law of the case. And in this particular case, the, the, the bankruptcy court has retained jurisdiction. The consensual plan to which the parties agreed is to be implemented over a period of five years, approximately. Uh, it is to prevent collateral estoppel effects flowing from that judgment. And we believe that notwithstanding the, the respondent's argument, there are collateral estoppel effects that might flow here under the uh, United States against Mendoza case, which applies collateral estoppel to issues of law. And those indicated that a, a, a court could adopt, say, the Ninth Circuit rule that vacated opinions still have precedential value. So even though you might prevail in a subsequent case on a collateral estoppel, there would be no collateral estoppel, but you'd lose anyway. Well, if, if under, this, under this hypothetical rule, which seems to me a very strange rule. If there were litigation outside the Ninth Circuit, Your Honor, I'm not sure that would be the case. The precedent certainly would be binding. In assume you're back in the Ninth Circuit. We would be in that situation. The precedent would be then binding in the Ninth Circuit. But no estoppel even in the Ninth Circuit, because that no, requires a judgment. That's correct. That's correct, Your Honor. Although, to a certain degree, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, there is a, a merging of the estoppel effect and the precedential effect within the confines of the Ninth Circuit and only within those confines. Well, under your theory that uh, it's uh, within the discretion of the court to decide whether to vacate the judgment or not, if the court were to decide not to vacate this judgment after the settlement, 
Is that an abuse of the court's discretion? I don't think so, Your Honor. I think the, the court uh, may exercise that discretion uh, in any way it seems fit, uh, and I, I don't believe that would be an abuse of discretion. So you just leave it entirely open to the court to weigh the factors one way or another and decide what to do? Subject to the general rule that we suggest that vacature upon mootness, where the mootness occurs as a result of settlement, is generally appropriate for the reasons that it promotes the values that we have described in our briefs, uh, fairness between the parties and the prudential concerns that uh, the judicial system must have with regard to the development of precedent. Well, in this case, what possible grounds under your rule would a court have for refusing to vacate? In this particular case? Yes. I don't believe there would be any grounds for refusing to vacate. Then the answer to Justice O'Connor is it would be an abuse of discretion. You told me it would not be an abuse of discretion to that's, refuse to vacate. That's correct, Your Honor. Perhaps I misunderstood your question. I, since, this, since the decisions of this Court are generally not reviewable, uh, I wouldn't think that, that it could not be characterized as an abuse of discretion. Well, let's talk about a Court of Appeals. I think there are some differences when you begin to talk about the Court okay, of Appeals, Your the Honor. the Court of Appeals on these facts, and the Court of Appeals refuses to vacate the judgment. Is that an abuse of discretion? I would think it would be. I would think it would be. And the reason is, as long as there is an appeal pending so that that decision which the Court of Appeals is reviewing is not final, Court of Appeals has not been able to complete its review of that decision, then uh, the, the What if the Court of Appeals has decided the case, but there's a petition for rehearing pending? I would say that that would be the same rule should apply. Should that decision is not final. That decision is not final. If parties settle, that's the end of the ballgame. Aren't you, in effect, asking the Court to write a term into the settlement agreement that you did not successfully negotiate? Many of these agreements put in the agreement itself that, that a term of the settlement is that the decision will be vacated. Here, you're asking the court, in effect, to put in as, as a term of the settlement what the opposing party and you didn't negotiate. Because Bonner is resisting the vacation. Bonner is resisting it, Justice Ginsburg. However, uh, it was not a term that was negotiated we do not believe, however, and we do not urge that that be a distinguishing consideration because the principles underlying vacature, fairness and the prudential concerns that I mentioned, particularly fairness, we don't believe should be uh, premised on the relative bargaining power of the parties. I don't fairness understand why you're in a different position from somebody who's just decided to forego an appeal, why we should treat you differently from someone who is withdrawn an appeal or decided not to appeal? Well, uh, if I may briefly explain some of the factual considerations that led us to where we are today, I think that will answer the question. For example, in this case, the parties were negotiating prior to the filing of the bankruptcy case in 1991. U.S. Bank Corp. had proposed certain settlement terms that it was willing to live with. Those terms included very basic minimums that it, that it required, a market rate of interest, an adequate loan-to-value ratio, things of that nature. Those terms were ultimately what was accepted by Bonner in January of 1994 and then subject to certain other conditions which then also were met later so that the consensual plan could be confirmed in March of 1994. Bonner was the party that made certain concessions and decided to forego reliance on the decision it had won in the Ninth Circuit. 
U.S. Bancorp did not exercise unilateral action. When you look at the facts in that light, I think what you see is that U.S. Bancorp was in the position of having to choose in this dilemma whether to accept an economic settlement which was favorable on its terms or having to defend a uh, decision or to challenge a decision in the Ninth Circuit which the prevailing party was no longer willing to, to litigate and was willing to forego. So it is not unilateral action in that sense at all. I think also that the fact that this court granted certiorari is perhaps one of the most salient elements of this particular case. Uh, another salient element is that the, the settlement, which I briefly described, was a bona fide settlement. There, there's no issue in this particular case of collusion. There's no issue of a deep pocket attempting to purchase vacature in this case. So those, those concerns which have been raised by the respondent simply do not apply. I think we, we should investigate each case uh, uh, for those concerns, have a mini-factual hearing every time uh, there's a motion to, uh, uh, to Munsingware a case? I do not, Your Honor, and I think that the, the general... Well, the proper answer should be, you know, maybe, maybe not, but tough luck. I, I, you I don't think so. Ways. I mean, you, you, you either have to acknowledge uh, <laughs> the possibility that that could happen now and then, or else you have to say we're going to have to conduct these inquiries. I believe it could happen now and then in the extraordinary circumstances that I alluded to earlier. As a, if the general rule which we propose is adopted, I don't believe it would be necessary for the court to engage in those kinds of inquiries. May I just ask in that regard, this case settled after we granted the certiorari, is that right? That's correct, Your Honor. And you advised the court that it had become moot. Did you make a motion to have the, the judgment vacated? Yes, we did, Your you Honor, did in our reply to the uh, memorandum filed by the respondent suggesting mootness. You, you moved it way you filed a motion. I didn't remember that. Yes, Your Honor. And we requested applica application of the Munsingware result. Uh, going back to Justice Ginsburg's question, uh, as a factual matter, U.S. Bancorp at the time the settlement was being negotiated, in fact, relied on what it believed was the existing precedent in this Why court. wouldn't it make sense just for us to dismiss, and you can go to the Ninth Circuit that says it will take these on a one-by-one -one basis, move on to 60B for them to reopen and vacate the judgment? Well, I think the fact that this court has granted certiorari, Your Honor, indicates that uh, it, is, it should be this court that vacates the judgment on the re for the reasons that the grant of certiorari by itself, in a way, is like, is like creating a doubt about that precedent. Although that precedent is now binding in the Ninth Circuit, it forever will have this question mark attached to it as to the review which was granted by this court and which, which was not able to be completed as a result of the settlement of the parties. So if we didn't grant cert, then it would be proper just when you had the settlement to dismiss outright. That may be the correct result, Your Honor. We would urge that this court uh, adopt explicitly, if it has not already, the call procedure that was proposed by the Solicitor General, and so that if a court, if a matter were cert-worthy at that time, the court could make the determination that vacature was appropriate, even if certiorari had not been granted by the time the party settled. Finality, then, is one of the key considerations that, that we uh, believe direct or would require vacature in this particular case. I wanted to distinguish this case from, from, I'm sure, the decision that would be relied upon by the respondent, and that is the Karcher against May case. In that case, the court was not dealing with, uh, even with mootness, uh, and not directly dealing with vacature. In that case, the uh, Parties who were named in the, in the petition had lost their position as legislators 
legislators in New Jersey and the court found that they did not have standing to assert any longer the uh, position that they had been asserting and that therefore the uh, appeal was dismissed for want of jurisdiction. The reference to happenstance in that case was simply to the argument of those parties that their loss of position was a matter of happenstance. The court pointed out that, in fact, the statutes in place in New Jersey at that time were specifically intended to avoid mootness. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Needler? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Since this Court's decision in Munsingware, and indeed before that time, this Court has followed a consistent practice uh, of vacating decisions of the lower courts that have become moot as a result of the settlement of the you're parties. You're talking then not just about judgments. You're talking about opinions also? Uh, judgments should be vacated. It follows from that in our, in our view that the precedential impact of the decision is also uh, eliminated. You don't agree then with your colleague who I, just spoke? I do not. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, one of the important por- points the Court made in Munsingware itself was that the decision should be vacated in order to prevent it from spawning any legal consequences. And those legal consequences could be collateral estoppel, they could be law of the case, but they can also, importantly, be the precedential impact of the decision in other cases. So it, it is an important aspect of the vacator to eliminate the precedential uh, impact of the decision. Mr. Needler, you're right that we've done it often, but almost all the times we've done it, uh, we've done it by way of... Uh, Recurium opinion or summary disposition. In, in fact, I think Munsingware is the only case I recall where we've uh, discussed, uh, discussed the reasons for it. And we also have a principle that in matters of procedure and uh, judicial administration, uh, stare decisis is, is least, uh, least strong. Well, uh, several points I'd like to make in response to that. In Munsingware was a, a, a uh, Discussion of the issue, but included in the court's discussion in Munsingware, where the court announced, where the court announced its general rule, it made no mention of the word happenstance. The court referred to its established practice when a case becomes moot, and cited a number of cases, four of which, as pointed out in footnote five of petitioner's brief, involved settlement. So the court was recognizing that the general practice that it had already established at the time of Munsingware applied to settlement. So there was no need to separately discuss, no need on this court's part to separately discuss how that rule should apply to settlement because the court was already relying on cases that involved settlement. And that, uh, that, the court's following of that practice since that time simply confirms that there has been a general rule. The question before this court is whether the court should now depart from that general rule. And uh, we think that respondent has shown, shown no reason for doing so. The problems with a case by the issue been litigated before, as far as you know? I think, I think in general not. I think the, party, the, the parties have, have recognized uh, the consequence that mootness leads to vacator of, of the decision this below. This the first time we're confronting the issue in an adversary context. Uh, the, the, first, the first time the court has, has certainly chosen to hear argument. Standing up and arguing both sides of the court. Yes, uh, but my, my point is that in Munsingware itself, the, the issue was, was uh, litigated completely, and in, at that time the court was uh, relying on cases that involved settlement. 
Um, and the Court's consistent practice since then has shown that it is, in fact, a settled rule. And we see no reason to depart from that. What do you mean by litigated completely in Munsingware? Well, the, the, the question of what the proper disposition of a lower court judgment should be when, when a case becomes moot was was uh, was The parties litigated. took opposing positions on the question? They did. Well, in, in, in Munsingware, the, the issue arose afterward when the United States uh, tried to avoid the collateral, consequ- collateral estoppel consequences or race judicata consequences of a judgment that it, that, uh, where the appeal was dismissed and the United States did not seek to have that judgment vacated. And what the court said is to prevent that from happening, the government should have sought uh, an order having the lower court decision vacated. Uh, and it, the court referred to its established practice, which include, included uh, uh, cases that had been settled. Mr. Needle, I'm not sure I have your answer to Justice Scalia's question. Did the parties file briefs on the issue in the Munsingware case, or did the court just dispose of it by explaining what it was doing? Do you know? Uh, I, my understanding is the parties filed briefs on the merits, and it was, it was heard on certiorari. It was... Uh, uh, there was a, it was not disposed of. Is that, is that not a case that became moot after we had granted certiorari? No, the case, the case became moot because the product was decontrolled while the appeal was pending in the lower courts. Uh, and the appeal was dismissed from the trial court. Uh, the appeal from the trial court to the Court of Appeals had been dismissed. And, in fact, the bottom line was preclusion. Yeah. Munsingware, the holding of Munsingware is the government was precluded. Yes, but because the, the government had not sought to have the judgment vacated, and what the court said is that it, its established practice had been that if the government had sought that relief, it would have been granted. Uh, on the way to a holding that the government was bound, the court said en passant, but if the government had done this, we would have followed our established practice. Yes, and, and, and then what the, the court has continued to follow its established practice in settlement cases. That's the point that, I am, uh, that I'm making. Well, and, but the, the dictum, uh, the considered dictum of Munsingware also classified it as a happenstance case, not a settlement case, regardless of what it may, regardless of what we may have cited. Well, it, it described, it described uh, the, the, the inability or the, the lack of review as having occurred by happenstance, but it, but it doesn't appear to me that... Well, that the, the happenstance referred, I thought, to the event which resulted in the mootness. Wasn't that correct? Isn't that that that's uh, that's not even clear? But but as, as we, we can assume for the moment that that's correct. I think the court could have been could have just been just saying that the uh, review was precluded by circumstances beyond the court's control. But the important point, there was just a reference in one, in one sentence to the word happenstance. But when the court stated its general rule, it did not contain the word happenstance on page 39, where the court described its established practice and, again, referred to cases involving settlement. Now, to depart from that and adopt a case-by-case rule would have a number of disadvantages. It would take this court's time in looking at the facts of each case to, to, see, what, to see whether a vacator would be appropriate. It would also undermine the certainty and predictability for the parties in entering into settlements. And indeed, in Munsingware, the court announced the duty. In Munsingware, the the court says what the established practice has been to reverse or vacate the judgment below and remand with a direction to dismiss. It doesn't say anything about the opinion. No, it doesn't say anything about the opinion, but the, the opinion would have precedential effect only because of the, only because of the judgment. The, the lower courts like this court and why, why, why do you say that? Well, the precedent comes uh, from the judgment of, of the court and the, the opinion explaining the judgment and the extent of the opinion that's necessary to the judgment becomes, becomes precedent, but it is the judgment that is the judicial role. It is the judgment that settles the case or controversy and therefore the judgment that, that is binding precedent in other cases. Mr. Needler, have you ever cited a case uh, uh, 
has the government ever cited cases in, in, in a brief in which it, it, it cites a case's authority uh, and then says, parenthesis, vacated on other grounds? Yes, citing it, citing it for its persuasive force. If, it, if, it is, if the judgment is vacated and not reinstated, I don't think it has binding precedential impact, uh, in force. We would cite it for whatever force it, it might carry. And the fact that it was overturned by a higher court on other grounds suggests that the reasoning uh, might be particularly persuasive. The but reasoning it would not wasn't reversed, at least. Exactly. But what would you do if you're a district judge in the Ninth Circuit and we follow the procedure you recommend and the same issue comes up that this panel decided? Would you follow the opinion, or would you say, well, it, it doesn't count? I if, you're think if, the court, if the district court found it persuasive, it could follow it. But the point is it would be an independent act of judging on the district court's part to decide what, what the correct result was without having that answer dictated by the Court of Appeals' decision. After all, the Court of Appeals' decision was rendered tentative at best by virtue of this Court's grant of certiorari, and it seems to us it would be unwise to leave a decision that this Court has uh, found sufficient reason to grant review and perhaps reverse standing as binding precedent in the Court of Appeals uh, and, and not free the parties to litigate that question. Well, but you, you'd give the same answer as, as with reference to the district judge's position uh, if the Ninth Circuit had vacated the opinion after a settlement. With quite well, suppose there's a settlement while the case is on rehearing in the Ninth Circuit. No, sir, sure, I grant it. And then it's vacated. What does the district court do then? It would be, it would be the same thing. If the, if right, so the grant of certiorari is irrelevant. Well, it, 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 just, it, it just indicates from the, from the perspective of this court's role, this court, this court sits to resolve conflicts or to resolve differences in the lower courts. And in this case, the Ninth Circuit's decision on the, on the new value exception was the first decision after this court's decision in, in Northwest Bank sustaining the new value exception. It would be consistent with this court's role of superintending the decisions in the lower courts to eliminate that precedent. Uh, and to allow the, the issue to continue to percolate in the lower courts, a practice which, which this Court has recognized is, is of considerable benefit. Uh, I'd also like to address the question of, of fairness. Uh, the, the rule we propose is consistent with the role of the courts. The rule we propose is consistent with the role of the courts as sitting to litigate actual controversies between parties and not to announce broader principles except as a derivative aspect of that judicial role. And there Yes. This is perhaps this is what we would have done, I think, in the Court of Appeal. Imagine. No, I, I'm out. I think. I, I, that's right. I'll, 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 answer, Justice Breyer. Look, go ahead. It's going to be. Uh, um, imagine two parties had agreed that the settlement is conditional upon vacating the judgment below. I, as a Court of Appeals judge, would have sent the whole thing back to the district judge to make a decision about that. And the reason I would have had him do that is there are not many, but there are quite a few complex litigations involving cleaning up the Boston Harbor, for example, or managing mental health uh, facilities, for example. And the vacating of a judgment might have significant implications on lots of other parties to the mental health litigation or the clean up the harbor litigation and might have changed their, their whole strategy were something like that to come up, or might have all kinds of implications that only the district court would know about. Therefore, even had they agreed on the settlement, I would have sent it back to get the district court's determination about how it affects third parties. Now, where I don't even have that agreement, I would worry about a rule that said automatically vacate for the reason I don't know what counts as a settlement. An appellant may simply stop. Is that a settlement? 
Moreover, 99% of the time, the appellant won't bother to ask for the vacating of the judgment. So sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. People later on come in and argue about the significance of that. It sounds complicated. So that, that was my reaction when I read the brief. I'm not saying that's what I'm actually thinking, but I want to know how, how, how you see this as working out according to your rule. Okay, several, several things. The, uh, when, when the appellant doesn't dismiss the appeal, the appellant is still seeking review of the judgment below, just as the petitioner does here. So the party is di- it's, it's different from where the party has just decided to let the lowercase judgment stand. That's the first thing. The second thing is that what causes, what leads the court to vacate the judgment is not the agreement of the party to vacate the judgment. It's the agreement of the party that settles the case, which renders the case moot. It's the mootness, then, under the Munsingware rule that requires vacator. The, the third and last point that I, uh, that, I, that I wanted to make is whether vacator is conditioned upon approval of the court. In a sense, the case may not yet be moot, because the settlement is not conclusive. But thank, whether you, thank you, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Elsesser, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court, we argue that this Court should not extend Munsingware to mandate routine vacature or any kind of stipulated reversal upon settlement. We argue that such vacature would erode certainty. It would allow for the manipulation of courts, including judge and forum shopping, and would directly challenge this Court's long-held belief in the fundamental importance of stare decisis. Public confidence in our judicial system would be undermined if decisions could be bought and sold at will, and the only settlements that would be promoted by such a rule as the government proposes would be in the rare but important cases where the the court's future, the the court decision's future impact and future uh, uh, results that a party might suffer has a present monetary value to one of the parties. I would suggest that these impacts and these results go far beyond even the broadest possible reading of Munsingware, which the government does in its, its proposal. We suggest a better rule that is short and simple in its application. No vacature upon settlement. We believe this rule not only properly follows Karcher versus May, but it limits vacature to its proper, proper place an equitable rule that is discussed in Munsingware, and it's when mootness is due to circumstances beyond the party's control, it is unfair to apply preclusion and collateral estoppel to those parties in that dispute. That would be the only circumstance where routine vacature should occur is when you have the situation of happenstance. What about when the winner throws in the towel? When the winner says... I'm afraid what the Supreme Court might do with this, so uh, I'm giving up. Well, in that situation, I don't think that would, if the winner caves in during the appellate process, I don't think that in any way moots the con- Well, you're saying if he just pays the judgment or does, the, uh, does whatever the other party requests, then no, I don't think there would be any grounds to vacate the court decisions below because the, the parties are getting everything they wanted in that circumstance, Justice Ginsburg. They've received everything. If the winning party, our party in this particular case, throws in the towel, then the And it says it condition, and then they have a settlement, and part of the settlement is that the the winner is going to give up that victory so that the case is not decided on appeal. 
Well, then I think you're getting right back into a stipulated vac vacature situation, not as in the record of this case, but on the record of, for, for instance, the Azumi situation, where you have, as soon as you, as soon as you go down that road, you're getting to a stipulated vacature between the parties, and that is not an external cause or an external grounds that I believe would justify vacature under those circumstances. Mr. Elsesser, uh, you mentioned a moment of Karcher against May. Uh, do you disagree with the, your opponent's characterization of that, that it was simply a loss of standing on the parties who were prosecuting the appeal to, to appeal? Well, I don't disagree that that was a situation where there was a loss of standing, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, but I do argue that there is no effective difference between the appellant and Karcher simply declining to proceed to go any further and a situation here where, as a result of the settlement agreement between Bonner Mall and U.S. Bank, the petitioner, in this case, the appellant in a lower appellate court situation, simply declines to go any further. I, I, I don't believe there is any effective difference because in both situations, you end up with a dismissal. You end up with a dismissal of the appeal. Yes, but certainly the, in Karcher against me, there was nothing uh, consensual about it as to the part of the party who was seeking to appeal, but was said to have had no standing. No, there, there was nothing, nothing consensual in not having any standing, but when the appeal ends, there was no reason to go back down and vacate uh, the lower court opinions. So in that situation, I, I think that's, that, that, that's the same result you gain in this particular case, where the bank makes a conscious decision that as part of the settlement, or by settling, by their act of settling, they moot the appeal. I, I think the, the effect is the same. Well, the effect may be the same. The procedure is certainly quite different. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. As a practical matter, why do you oppose vacating the judgment here? Your Honor, Why does your client oppose it? What use do you anticipate making of it? Your Honor, we oppose vacature in this setting, in the post-mootness, essentially, motion before this Court for vacature. Uh, it was no part of our bargain. I must concede to you that my client in this particular case has no future interest as a result of the settlement any more than, in this particular case, the bank has no future interest in this particular settlement. They have an interest, as they've conceded in their brief, that they want to be able to relitigate the, the issue in the Ninth Circuit, and perhaps their, their companions elsewhere wish to do the same in other circuits. But it is true that our party has no identifiable, identifiable interest in vacating a particular judgment, particularly in this situation where it was a pure issue of law from the ground up, if you will, from the, from the bankruptcy court decision all the way up. It made no specific findings of that. Is it clear that, uh, that uh, the petitioner here would not be bound uh, by the decision below insofar as res judicata or collateral estoppel effect is concerned? Your Honor, we, we agree with the government in one respect that if the court grants the vacature in this situation, it, it takes away the precedential and preclusive effects yeah, of the I'm not talking about precedent now. I'm, I'm talking about, uh, strictly speaking, res judicata effect or collateral estoppel effect. I think it would have to, I think it would have to dispose of those two. Oh, I understand. But without, without the vacator, would there be such an effect? I don't believe there would be true collateral estoppel because it was a pure issue of law. 
I believe there would be race judicata but, effect. But doesn't preclusion apply to issues of law as well as of fact? Yes, they do, Your Honor. All right. So why couldn't the bank, having litigated and lost this issue, be taken to have litigated and lost it against all the world, and then there would be preclusion, collateral estoppel, with respect to that determination of law? I don't believe, Your Honor, that Mendoza would go so far as to preclude the, if, if the, this Court vacates the rulings below as far as they want, they want them to have vacated. I don't believe that that would have a preclusive effect in another case in another state by U.S. Bank from raising the pure issue of law of whether that applies. What about in this very case, at least in the petitioner's reply, they do posit this settlement falling through and then they're being back in the same circumstance and, again, the new value issue coming up in this very case. Well, certainly I think in that situation, you would have the result that vacature would allow them to argue the legal issue again and respond as, as, as they have responded in argument that the, the precedential value of the Ninth Circuit opinion was only, really becomes advisory only, no different than any other kind of persuasive authority. But if you did have a litigation fact involved here, um, the, uh, what, what would be the, the race judicata effect if we go your way? Uh, collateral estoppel effect if we go your way? If you had an issue of fact, then I think it would have binding race judicata effect. I don't think there's any, any question. So you're, you're not arguing that that is mitigated by the fact that a court later on uh, could, in fact, uh, consider the settlement as a reason not to give estoppel effect? I'm not sure if I understand that particular point. I, I think that in a, in a question of fact, there would clearly be binding race judicata effect. And there would be no way to get out of it, on your view, and there should be no way to get out there of it. There should be no way. There, there, there's they no didn't have to settle. They did not have to settle, but in addition to that, there, there are no extrinsic grounds to vacate the lower court decision. There, there, there would be no unfairness when the parties to a settlement have essentially contracted. They, they've contracted their own race judicata, and they don't really have any any needful concerns over what the prior rulings were and below because they've already reached agreement. The only difference to that, of course, is, is in a situation where they have actually contracted with the vacature. And while I, while I can see that that's not... What if that happens? Is your position that even if the party's settlement agreement provides that, uh, that the, uh, uh, the party uh, uh, appealing the decision below... Uh, shall uh, uh, move the court to uh, to vacate it. Well, that that was precisely the case in Azumi, and I think that really is even worse. I concede, Justice Scalia, that my client is a business person. They would have accepted a monetary offer at some level, just as Windmere did in Azumi, to contract out of the court decision. That very well could have happened if the offer had been made and accepted. And I think that is. The strongest argument against vacature upon settlement is because it clearly allows for the purchase of precedent, even though that is not the circumstance in this case. So it isn't just the party's expectations that you're asking to be defended here, but, but rather the, uh, the integrity of the, uh, of the process. Well, abso- absolutely, Justice Scalia, because to, to, get, to make that a part of a bargain, it's no more proper in that circumstance to be able to sell, for us to be able to sell the precedential value of that opinion than for the bank to be able to purchase it. 
That is simply a, a contract that should not be allowed to be made when the result is going to be the vacation, in this case, of binding circuit precedent. Well, Mr. Elsesser, uh, you, you take it as, as a given, I guess, that if there is a vacator, it is not just of the judgment, but of, of the opinion as precedent. I, I do take that, Your Honor. I think that that's the government's position, and I it believe... It is the government's position. I don't think it's, it's the petitioner's position. No, it is not the, the petition. Well, I, I, I disagree with you there, Mr. Chief Justice, because I think the, the, the bank wants it both ways. They argue, as Phillips did, that, well, it, it could be precedent if someone wants to consider it precedent, uh, but maybe it is or maybe it isn't. They, they're really not, because they clearly want, as a motivation here, to remove that precedent from the Ninth Circuit. It does nothing for the bank to relieve the judgment-relieving stay at the trial level. That is, that's beyond any contemplation of any parties. The only motivation that they would have was, is to destroy the precedential impact. And you say that there should never be vacator? No, I do not say there should never be vacater. I believe that vacater is entirely appropriate under the Munsingware situation where there is a change in the law, where there is a party perhaps who is subject to an injunction who dies and therefore there is no successor party. In those circumstances where there is external cause, vacater as an equitable doctrine under Munsingware is appropriate. But why, then why should there have been vacater in Munsingware? where, in effect, the government caused the change which resulted in the case becoming moot. Well, I don't agree that there was vacater in Munsingwar. I think they, Munsingwar was prospective in that respect. But in answer to that question, you, you've got the unique situation of the government where they're making laws and they're enforcing laws. And I think that in that particular situation, it was merged. The, the, the legislative or administrative section of government changed the regulation and the, the, the council responsible or the, the department responsible uh, for enforcement therefore lost its rights. That is, I believe that's an external cause. Well, can the bank here say, you know, that uh, our uh, mortgage loan department <laughs> made this decision, but I'm the general counsel. I don't want to be bound by it. Um, no, uh, that, uh, that's, not an external, that's not an external situation. Well, why but should it be external with respect to the government? The party is the United States of America, which represents both the legislature and the executive branch. Well, I believe in that circumstance it, it will not be an, uh, a difficult or burdensome rule for, for this court or any, any circuit court of appeals or, for that matter, district court to determine that happenstance standard, if the, if the law governing the dispute that everybody is relying on changes, which was the situation in Munsingware, then that is an appropriate grounds, and we argue the only appropriate grounds for vacater. I mean, there are about 50,000 appeals and uh, every year in the federal system. And uh, I take it you want the same rule for appeals as for the uh, — as, as — and the Supreme Court's involved, is that right? Yes, Your Honor, and I, w I would point out... And then 50,000 cases are coming up, and most of them involve legal issues not of tremendous significance. And all these decisions are written by district judges who may be writing quickly, may have just a couple of sentences. And if somebody on the appeal says, I'm not going to abandon this further, but I'm worried about the collateral estoppel effect, so the two parties agree that they will settle the matter provided they get rid of that collateral estoppel. What's wrong in the ordinary case with permitting that agreement to take effect, assuming it has no major implications for third parties and isn't in complicated litigation? 
Well, I think it would be a unique situation, uh, in answer to your question, Justice Breyer, where it wouldn't affect third parties because there would be no reason for that party to need vacater. In what you're describing is the exact situation in Phillips. Phillips bought itself a new judge in a new district, essentially was, was blessed with forum shopping by obtaining vacature of the original district court decision, which was just a jury verdict. It was not Ninth Circuit precedent. It was, it was a jury verdict and a denial of a motion for new trial, which was pending before the Federal Circuit. Now they can get around that finding, litigate what they concede is the identical issue in Illinois in the hopes of getting a different result. And I would argue that's the precisely the type of relitigation that every court in the federal system, including this one, has a has a vested interest in avoiding. It's, Why? Not, a, it's not a victimless uh, uh, situation, you suggest. The courts are the victims. I think uh, the courts and the victims, I think uh, there, uh, there are... The judicata and collateral estoppel uh, uh, are, are there in part to serve the interests <laughs> of the courts, not to have to redo things all the time. Well, that's, yes, and I think in the Phillips situation, I think that's even perhaps the clearest example is that we know we don't have to speculate on this broad question of whether vacater promotes settlements or doesn't promote settlement. We know in that situation Phillips has, for $57 million, bought the right to relitigate the issue in Illinois and pretty much as many times as they want if they have other defendants on the same issue. And in this case, what the bank is, is asking for, and, it, and it's in their brief, is they, they believe there is a tangible benefit to be gained by really starting the relitigation of the new value rule in the Ninth Circuit all over again, from the settlement table to the bankruptcy court to either the BAP or the district court level and all the way up to the circuit. If if there was no need to get rid of the binding precedent, there would be no need for them to move to vacate. What I'm asking is, let me say with the case in front of me I'm thinking of, a very large proportion of our appeals concern matters of fact. What are the underlying facts of the contract? What happened in the auto accident? Lots of them are that way. And what I'm thinking of is if in a fact-based appeal, which comprises a very large percentage, the parties are, one of, they want to settle, but they're worried about the collateral estoppel effects of fact-finding, for example. So they say, we'll settle it if you vacate the judgment below. It's an auto accident. Nobody else is involved. Just these parties. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? I know one thing, as you right. could say, which is a reasonable point, that, that well, the courts uh, is somehow involved and is a kind of a victim. I've got that. Is there anything else? Is that the only consideration? Or are there others? I think in the terms of the district court, uh, the, the, the race judicata and collateral estoppel are the important reasons not to do that, because it would be almost impossible to determine. Uh, Justice Breyer, you, you mentioned in response to the other question that, that, that you believe the appropriate circuit practice is to remand questions of vacature to the court that decided it. I'm not necessarily opposed to such a rule, but I think the ru- that rule is always leaving open the question. Uh, parties have rights under Rule 60B. They can go in and make a case. In, gener- in general, generally, 60B is a pretty tough standard to meet with a, tr- with a trial judge. And I don't think the mere settlement of the parties saying X has bought Y's 
uh, opposition to a vacature, so vacate, should be in and of itself a 60B grounds. But we could live with a rule that would at least allow the court that made the decision be the court to decide whether or we not could to live. Bono really has no — the decision here is not going to affect Bono way, one way or another. So I understand you really to be arguing as a friend of this court because you, we asked you to brief the issue. I see the issue is a repeating one for Bancorp, but Bonner has no continuing interest. I, I concede that, Your Honor. That, that, is, that is correct. Bonner has no continuing continuing action or no continuing — they had no reason to agree to a vacature but they have no future interest, nor, I, I believe, does the bank have any future interest other than a desire to change the law, in this case, non-legislatively. Well, the bank does suggest that it's possible that the new value exception will again become an issue between these parties if the plan that's now on the table isn't confirmed. Well, the, pl- the, plan, the, the plan was uh, — I'm not sure the exact. Well, there's a five-year period. Right. If it doesn't work out, you may be back to square one. Right. In five years, the bank has to be paid in full. It would be difficult under the stipulated consensual plan for it would be virtually. I would say it would be impossible for Bonner to again invoke the new value exception under those circumstances. So you are arguing this as as kind of a friend of the court. There's no interest of your litigant in it. Only the remotest. I have to concede this is, this is more in the nature of a friend of the court. That is well, we're indebted to you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honor, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think I, I would argue that the, the idea or the concept of evading precedent or evading preclusion as a grounds for vacature is a recent phenomenon. I would argue that at the time of Munsingware, and in the summary treatment that this Court has given Munsingware since its enactment, that litigants, frankly, did not see the possibility of being able to buy a court decision, being able to use a, a procedure that, if, you, if, if one reads Munsingware, really has no application, but seeing that in the circuits as well as this Court, Munsingware seemed to be an automatic rule for disposition of cases, this presented an opportunity. Only in the last 10 years, and really to a great amount only in the last five years, have the circuits had before them situations where it is clear that, for instance, in the Oklahoma City case, the government is coming in and buying a decision. The Phillips case, Phillips is coming in and buying a decision. In the other cases decided in in the Second Circuit, where they did make a distinction between appellate opinions and, and, and district court judgments, again, in the manufacturer's Hanover case just in the past year and a half, the concern is there that if you allow routine vacature upon settlement, whether or not you're presented with — whether you're ever presented with anything other than a notice by the parties, or whether you're presented, as they were in Oklahoma City, with a joint motion contemplating vacature, in either of those circumstances, every circuit other than the Federal Circuit that has had to address the idea of vacature upon settlement in recent times have said, this is not a Munsingware situation. This is not happenstance. This has the potential for abuse. It has the potential for manipulation of precedent. It has a potential for people being able to purchase 
decisions. In principle, how do you distinguish other cases where, where a case has become moot, for example, by the uh, death of one of the parties? Uh, you don't deny that we have authority to vacate the judgment below then? What, what is your argument? I think the, the, the death of a party is it's clearly not a voluntary act of that party. And it's not... Well, I understand, but I mean, I need some conceptual framework. What is it? This is, a, this is an equitable power that we have, and, uh, and, and in that case, there is an equity in, in eliminating the decision below? I, th- I, I think I would argue, Justice Scalia, that that's what Munsingware, in fact, does provide, is, is equitable grounds. I don't believe Munsingware is grounded in Article Three. I believe it is in equitable grounds. We, ha- we have the doctrine of collateral s- estoppel. If you follow the results without vacature of this case, there will be unfairness because an outside occurrence occurred, whether it is the death of a party or the change of a law or the modification of an ICC regulation and that sort. That is and, and, and in the case where a party has voluntarily dis- declined to pursue his legal remedy, there's, there's no equity in... in Relieving him of the uh, judgment. No, and, and I, I would I would I would argue that that is the the finding in in, uh, in Karcher is that voluntary termination uh, makes no effective difference. Um, I I would further like to argue and argue in conclusion that the decision of a court, this court under these circumstances or any other court, is a decision. I don't believe you could, that it can be avoided that this is a decision, it is a ruling. I, I do agree with the government that it does, a vacater does specifically vacate precedent. I don't know how the terms vacating can do anything if the Ninth Circuit opinion but to vacate precedent and relegate it to arguable authority. Without happenstance, without this extrinsic event, this outside event, the decision that any court makes in a vacature situation is, is made in a vacuum. There are no grounds presented. There are, there's no reasoning presented. There has still been no articulate reasoning of why the court should vacate by the bank other than the Ninth Circuit might have been wrong. We couldn't find out. So there should be an asterisk by the decision that renders it not as precedent in the case. And you would be really in a situation of destroying existing parties. You couldn't avoid destroying existing, excuse me, you couldn't avoid destroying existing court decisions without it being on the whim of the parties if you adopted, if you extend Munsingware the way the government proposes to do it, which will be an automatic vacater. It wouldn't be practical for this court to have vacature hearings. The better rule is simply to determine if it's happenstance, that should be apparent, and it's moot. If it's not, dismiss the appeal. If they have grounds, if the losing party below has grounds to go to the circuit, 60B-type grounds, or go to the district court, they're not foreclosed by the refusal of this court to, this court to vacate. The parties can control. What about the people that have been operating under our Munsingware uh, uh, rule and have um, bought bought uh, vacators fair and square. Uh, um, what do we tell them now? I, I, Justice Scalia, I don't think they've bought it fair and square because they're really, the rulings that have followed Munsingware from this court have been summary dispositions, first of all. Second of all, the distinction was raised in Karcher. And third, the in, in the various circuits right now, as we, as we stand here in the various circuits in 
in either a majority or nearly a clear majority of the circuits, Munsingware is specifically limited to happenstance. The courts now with the Second and the Tenth Circuit are saying this. Even the California Supreme Court, which has been truly the champion of vacature just last week, backed away and vacated an appellate court decision in a per curiam, I mean, refused to vacate an appellate court decision in a pure Wasn't the legislation decision. in California, though, that, that caused that? Um, no, because Governor Wilson just vetoed that uh, legislation. Just in the, That and the Supreme Court's decision uh, just last week, I don't have a cite on it yet, I just have the reporting of it. In that case, after pronouncing Neary, they distinguished themselves, or they distinguished an appellate decision from Neary. In other words, they were... You say they distinguished themselves, too. Well, or they, <laughs> they wanted to draw that line between appellate courts and, and trial courts. And I don't know if that's a line that really, really can be effectively drawn. I think 60B can take care of what the litigants' problems are in, in, uh, in the federal court. I thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank, thank you, you, Mr. Elsesser. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until 10 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs>